We're in the Gospel according to Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 32. I'm reading from the New International Version. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go to, to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass over them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Mark has lots of themes. When we dealt with the parable of the sower some weeks ago, I argued that that was the central teaching of Jesus in the gospel according to Mark. And I still believe that. But this story seems to be the central event in the story of Jesus. Now, that might seem strange, because you'd expect the cross to be the central event, the resurrection from the dead to be the central event. And in many ways, that's still true. But what happens here informs what happens there. Mark is a short book. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. But this story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 is longer in Mark than in any of the other Gospels. It's a significant moment. And in the passage we've just read together, the question, who is Jesus, comes to the forefront of the Gospel of Mark. And from this point forward, everything changes. And there are three responses that Mark suggests through this event, these two events, really, in the life of Jesus, to the question, who is Jesus? And we're going to deal with them over the next three weeks. Today, we're only going to deal with the first. And the first response that Mark suggests is this. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. 
First, we're told that Jesus looked at these crowds that had gathered, 5,000 men plus women and children. And he said that he had compassion on them, the text tells us, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's significant imagery, the shepherd. There are two primary shepherds in the history of Israel, Moses and David. Moses spent 40 years, according to Jewish tradition, in, uh, in Egypt. And then after running out of Egypt, after he killed an Egyptian, he spent 40 years as a shepherd in the plains around Mount Sinai. And then he spent 40 years leading the Israelites through the wilderness. So Moses is a shepherd, and throughout the First Testament, he's often hearkened back to as the shepherd of Israel. But here are the people of Moses, following the law, who are sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has compassion on them. Then we're told that they are in a remote place, your English translation says. What's interesting, and they need to do that so that you understand we're not talking about a desert, the way we would think of desert. But the word is actually the same. They were in a desert. This is a desert. The reason we don't want to translate it that way is you and I think of a desert as a place with a lot of sand or with no rain. But the term in Jesus' day simply meant uh, an, an uninhabited place, an abandoned place, a place where there were no settlements. And so here they're in the wilderness. And then the question is asked, how do we feed such a multitude in the wilderness? Well, here Moses is constantly here, not only in the language of the shepherd, but Moses was the one who led the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. And the question of food was also a problem there. And how did God solve that problem? He sent manna. Every day, minus one a week, the Sabbath, when they wandered for those 40 years, God provided enough manna to feed the people in the wilderness. And here we have Jesus, surrounded by thousands of people in the wilderness who need food. Moses. And then, Jesus sends his disciples out on this mission, and he says, go find out how much food you have. And they just so happen to find five loaves of bread. And two fish. Nobody knows why the two fish. But the five loaves of bread seem clear enough. There were five books of Moses. And then, in order to better feed them, Jesus organizes them into groups of hundreds and fifties. Moses did that too. Now, this correlation between bread and the Word of God is important. I'm not just making a random connection between the five loaves of bread and the five books of Moses. This is a connection made in the law of Moses. Matter of fact, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus quotes this verse. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. This is Moses speaking. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. 
This groups of hundreds and fifties is also interesting because it helps us to see the role the disciples are meant to play. This is a picture of the kingdom of God happening in this small scene. It tells us that Jesus broke them up into groups of hundreds and fifties and sent his disciples out to feed. That's similar to something Moses did in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. I'm going to read that. At that time, I said to you, you're too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes. And I'll set them over you. He had 12 disciples, remember? You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging here, both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I'll hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. So here, Moses, as a way of trying to organize the kingdom of Israel into more manageable pieces, he sets up elders to be his emissaries, and then he breaks them up into thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Jesus, when he tells his disciples to go out and feed the crowds, which is his... Jesus says this to Peter, right? Feed my sheep. This is the call of the apostles. He organizes them just like Moses did. I don't know that Mark could have done any more to highlight the fact that Jesus is being put in the position of Moses in this text. Mark highlights these correlations, but there's something else. Jesus is not said in Mark to, to have arranged this situation. For Mark, Jesus was trying to get away with his disciples to a lonely place to pray, and the people saw them going and thought, we'll get ahead of them, and they ran for it. And they made it to the other side before Jesus and the disciples arrived, and they were there. And then we're told that Jesus says, why don't we feed these guys? And the disciples say, we don't, how are we going to do this? We don't have the money. And he says, find out how much bread there is. They go through a search. We don't know where it comes from, despite the story that says a little boy brought it to him. I don't know where it was from here in Mark. We're not told. But they come up with five loaves, just so happens. And then Jesus prays, and he feeds them all. What Mark indicates is that someone greater was at work in this moment. Jesus is the new Moses. Why does that matter? It matters. First, Israel had been waiting for Moses since the day he died. Let me read you some passages. This is from Deuteronomy 18. Moses is speaking to the people. And he says, The nations you will dispossess, Listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. 
I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I've not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. And so here, right at the beginning, Moses sets up the expectation that another prophet like him would come, and that Israel was going to be judged on whether or not they listened to that prophet. Now, we might think, sure, there were lots of prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but we have to also understand the writing of Deuteronomy. I mean, obviously, it begins with Moses, but it's finished much later. Matter of fact, the last chapter of that book looks to have been written by the Israelites when they were in exile in uh, Babylon. And looking back over the entire history of Israel, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, likely, we find these words, Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. Since then, since the death of Moses, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. All those prophets, all those people sent by God, not one like Moses. And yet, Moses promised one like himself. Where is he? He's Jesus. When we ask, who is Jesus?, what, how do we respond? Do we think, well, Jesus is the sacrifice for my sins. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my advocate with the Father. This is, most of this is biblical language. But what does it mean to say Jesus is the new Moses? And why is it so hard for us in the Protestant church to hear it? Because Moses was a lawgiver. And we prefer to think of Jesus as a law-ender. There's no law under Jesus, right? Once I get saved, I can do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. There's no more rules. There's just advices. And I can take them if I want. Or not. Doesn't matter. Otherwise, it'd be salvation by works. There's no law. So why do we need a new Moses? But you see, Jesus sets himself up as a lawgiver, not simply as a law ender. See, the problem with legalism is that once you have this list of do's and don'ts, suddenly you're in control of your own salvation and your own fate. As long as you check off the list of do's and don'ts, you're good to go. And so a legalist makes a safe God in a safe path for the future. Now, we are aware that that is not the kind of relationship that we have in God, that he's simply looking for us to check things off. But that is not to say that there is no law for those who follow Jesus. What we are free from is not expectations. Legalists obey out of duty, out of fear. What Jesus sets us free is to obey out of trust. Faith. Trust. See, the law that Jesus gives us is still a law for us. But where Sinai required obedience out of duty to a covenant that we had agreed to, and harsh punishments came for disobeying the covenant we agreed to, 
what was once duty is now a question of how much you trust Him. It's a question of faith. And it'd be so much easier to say He's not the new Moses. He's not the new lawgiver. If only I didn't have to believe that when Jesus commanded a thing, that is the exact same as God commanding it. When Jesus says, forgive your enemies, that's not just Jesus' opinion on the matter. It's God Himself speaking into human history saying, forgive your enemies. And when you and I decide not to do that, what we essentially are doing is deciding that we know better than Him. What should be done? We do not trust. When we say that Jesus is Lord, it's a lot of things bound up in that, but part of it is that we confess that He is the one we will trust. And so the question for each of us is, do you really believe that, or are you just saying it? What does it mean to follow a God who will command us in the midst of difficulty to do things completely irrational and opposed to our belief system? What does that mean? So we throw around the words faith and belief very easily. But for Hebrew people, you only believe what you do. The best mark of your beliefs are your behaviors. Because in the end, we behave out of our deepest convictions. Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new lawgiver. He's not simply a sacrifice for your sins. He tells us what God wants. And that word, once spoken to us, becomes a criteria by which our faith can be evaluated. We don't earn salvation by obeying Jesus. He died for us before we ever did anything, while we were still sinners. We don't merit the cross because we somehow have earned God's favor by being really hard-working, dutiful people. We don't. Jesus saved us before we even knew who he was. But that is not the same as saying that we are all going to end up with him in glory. Once he says to us, love your enemies, once he says to us, when you fast and pray, do it in secret, once he says to us, anyone who wants to be my disciple has to deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Once those words are said to us, suddenly they become the litmus test of whether we trust him or not. And so the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing bone from marrow. It separates what we think we believe from what we actually do believe. The word of God itself exposes the truth of what we truly believe. And for many of us, when put under the weight of Jesus' words, we discover that we do not believe Him. We do not trust Him. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus' words are God's words to us. The Israelites under the law of Moses were not allowed later on in their history to decide Moses was wrong about anything. They never asked it. 
But we're asking it, aren't we? Why should I listen to Jesus? My challenge for you is to recognize that the confession that Jesus is Lord is in part the confession that he is the new Moses. That somehow Jesus speaks the word of God to us. And what Jesus says, God says. And then I would ask you to trust him. He created this world. He knows how it should operate. He knows what kind of a life brings freedom. He knows what kind of a life brings hope. He knows what kind of a life brings contentment. It may oftentimes, his teachings, fly in the face of all of our logic and our reason and our capacity to grasp it. But if we believe he is Lord, then we must believe he wants what is in the end best for us even if it means the end of my life. We don't believe we can be saved by what we do. But we do believe that what we do reveals what we believe.